Welcome to Trending in Education. Mike Palmer here. Very happy to be rejoined today by Miriam Flatinsky. We had her on just after her first book came out, Teach More, Hover Less. She's got a new book out, Lead Like a Teacher. She's an instructional specialist who works in the D.C. area. We're going to dive into what she has going on. But before we do any of that, Miriam, welcome back to Trending in Education. Thanks, Mike. I'm so excited to be back. It's like visiting an old friend. Yeah. And every time you come back, it's like you bring a new gift, which is your latest book. They are well titled. Your previous book was Teach More, Hover Less, the idea of helicopter parenting and helicopter teaching and a little bit of letting go as good advice for all of us who really are trying to control our lives and perhaps control our classrooms. So I thought that was a great first dip in the pool with you. And now you're back with your new book, Lead Like a Teacher, which again is a great title and there's a lot to dig into in terms of what you have going on in the book. Before we do that, uh, maybe an abbreviated version in case folks haven't listened to our first episode together, who you are, how you got to this point in your career, and then maybe we can dig into Lead Like a Teacher. Well, as you said, my day job, I'm an instructional specialist, which means I work in a very large district supporting essentially English language arts and literacy for teachers and administrators and kids in grades 6 to 12. So that is how I spend my days. It is a beautiful thing to do. And then I write books and articles and whatever anybody wants me to write, <laughs> I will do that in the evenings or in the very early morning at like 4 a.m. Yeah. My professional background is really all education. I've been in my district now for almost 23 years. I spent most of that time in the classroom as a teacher. I transitioned to school leadership, mainly with instructional type things, professional development. And then I've been with our central office for almost five years. Yeah. You mentioned writing. You also write for Edutopia pretty regularly. So we're always keeping an eye out for those. So Miriam Platinsky, as I like to quote Barton Fink, we're going to hear from her and I don't mean a postcard. We're continuing <laughs> to see new stuff that you're writing. And then your latest thing is really pulling together recommendations primarily for school administrators. But I think there's lots of lessons for all of us in the idea of leading like a teacher, staying close to the classroom, since at the end of the day, that's really where the value is created, the learning breakthroughs happen. You know, it's almost like the lean thinking that you see, value stream thinking that you see on the enterprise side, where is the real value happening? It's happening in the classroom. Can we remind leaders and remind administrators that leadership in many ways, particularly educational leadership in K-12, should ultimately be grounded in what it means to be a teacher? Can you dive in a little more on what the book's about, what drove you to write it, and then what are some of the themes that maybe we can touch on in the conversation? In its original form, when I was first brainstorming ideas, I had this really big, way too big idea about how do we fix schools? Because at the time, I was working in school improvement, and I would talk to people all day, and I would get these laundry lists of what I want for my school. And then I started thinking about who I was seeing and who I was talking to. And whenever we're having these really important conversations about how schools can get better, who is at the table? It's usually a conference table. It's usually in a main office somewhere. And I started to notice over time, not only that teachers were usually not at those tables, but also that when they were, the school environment seemed to be more functional and they had fewer items on their laundry list or they were more focused on what they wanted to do. Then I started thinking about what I call in the book, the empathy gap, which is what happens when 
the longer you are away from a classroom, the harder it is really to understand what somebody else is going through. And I think it works in two directions because, you know, a teacher will see an administrator and they might identify them with an office or they might identify them with, you know, some sort of high up place that's not even necessarily tangible in their brain. And they're thinking, what does this person do all day? Yeah. So everyone thinks they understand what everyone else does, but very few people actually fully get it or have that understanding. And so that's really what inspired me to pursue this topic more because ultimately you can't have a good place for students exist unless people, the adults, all the adults in the building are collaborating and appreciating one another's expertise. Yeah. It reminds me also of the idea of psychological safety and building a learning culture where if folks don't feel safe, they're less likely to put themselves out as a learner to say, like, I don't know these things. I actually need to get better at these things. It's true in both directions, but particularly in power dynamics, frequently the folks who are the, on the authority figure side are the ones who are least likely to admit that they don't know things and that they need to learn new things. And, you know, you're positioning this as an empathy gap and really focusing on the empathy side is also a great message for leaders where if you really want to lead, you need to be open to learning from the people who you're leading. And then in the case of teachers, they should be good communicators. They should be open to giving you that type of information, those types of signals. I know you work with schools in a bunch of different capacities. What are some of the techniques that you've seen that are effective to kind of build that foundation of trust, build that culture of learning that's really necessary to really have teachers at the table? I mean, one of the easiest ones and the one that you see the least often is accessibility. Many leaders are not visible on a regular basis, or they confine themselves to certain spaces. Like you might walk into a meeting room and all of the assistant principals or administrators are clustered in one part of the room together yeah. and not mixing with everybody else. Or they are, as I said, mainly visible within a front office. The places where you find a better, more collaborative space, that's where leaders are moving throughout the building. You know, one of the recommendations that I make in the book is move around, take your laptop with you. We're blessed to have laptops that go anywhere. Sit in a team room. At first, it might be weird. People might not want to talk with you nearby and wonder why you're invading what they see as their space. But after a while, if it's not a threatening interaction, if you're just there to kind of work and answer the odd question, it might increase the odds that people are going to see this as a relationship where they can dip in a little bit. So just something as, as simple as that. Yeah. Yeah. It reminds me of, I think it was Adam Grant's podcast years ago, but he was talking about the interpersonal dynamics of the writers group at the daily show. And they talked about how when Trevor Noah, the host would show up, the flow of the conversation wouldn't change. It would be a sign that people felt comfortable bouncing ideas off of, and then he kind of would fit in and continue to work the writer's room dynamic. It's very similar, I think, in a lot of professional contexts, and then particularly in teaching contexts, you know, the related reality is that teachers are going through a hard time. Like, it's never been an easy job. And then a lot of the pressures and challenges of the last few years around the pandemic and even the polarization that's happening in our country today, teachers are still very much on the front line, K-12 teachers in particular. And then that same 
foundation of empathy to start from a place of trying to understand what it feels like and then building that through tactics that get you closer to them so that if they really need help, they feel okay asking for it. It's funny. I'm watching one of my favorite TV shows, the final season on Marvelous Mrs. Maisel right now. Yeah. And in this season, she's become a writer for a late night show. And, you know, the boss, the actual host of the show is in his own office somewhere and the writers are in their own room. It's always sort of terrifying when it comes down. And I think it's a pretty common thing. You know, when we become any kind of supervisor or boss or our position gets elevated, we start to add consequence to ourselves. And you see people do this. And I remember the most, and this is also in the book, one of the most enlightening things that a supervisor ever said to me was, nobody here is more important than anybody else. I've never thought that anybody is more important. And if you buy into that lore that it somehow is, and you put yourself into a different space all the time, and you're creating a physical separation, but gets emotional separation. Yeah. And it starts to, to create distrust. And, you know, I've been in spaces where I'm remote physically from a boss and they don't ever come down to the office or they don't ever visit. And I'm like, okay, well, then I guess I'll just proceed as however I would proceed. It's not the best way to lead, I don't think. It's almost like the command and control dynamics that you talked about in your first book, Teach More, Hover Less, where at the micro level of your individual classroom, are you micromanaging interactions? Are you shoulder surfing when you could let go and allow students that freedom so that they can assert their agency and build better classroom dynamics? It almost feels like this book is a natural extension to the school or the district level where those same kinds of helicopter administration, I guess in this case, you know, there are tendencies that we drift into as humans if we're not thoughtful about letting go and empowering others and understanding their perspectives. Can you expand on that? Yeah, I mean, I think there's actually a relationship between not being connected to people and micromanaging them. I think we micromanage those we don't trust and we don't trust them when we don't know enough about them. So the way that I've always looked at it with any leader, and this certainly applies to administration, is know your building, but not just the building itself, know the people in it. If I know that a teacher over here is really skilled at doing X, Y, Z, whereas another teacher, you know, another place is actually looking to build that skill and I can connect them, then that's going to make my building stronger. Or if I'm leading in professional development and it happens to be on that thing that that one teacher is really good at, they can lead the PD and not me. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to build better connections. And it's not micromanaging, it's the opposite because I've been paying attention and I've been intentional about what I do, but I'm not, you know, doing that thing where I'm saying, I'm far away. I'm going to make a determination about how you're doing your job and tell you what you need to learn. I mean, just today, I was having a conversation with a friend of mine who's a teacher a few states away. And my friend was saying that she is really frustrated because she doesn't feel like any of her professional development over the past few years has been about teaching. And she really wants to get back to talking about instruction. It's been about other things. And it was very much a, they decide this for me and here's what I have to do. And I think that's pretty common. Yeah. So ultimately, it's almost as though when we think we're not in somebody's way, we're doing the opposite. And you talk a lot about elevating expertise in your book, which I thought was a nice way of putting it too, where if you can flip the dynamics, so it's a little more of a listening tour and getting closer to the culture. And then through that process, you discover where you already have the innovation happening. This is the William Gibson quote, you know, the future is here now, it's just not very evenly distributed. 
you know, there is innovation that's already happening. It's probably decentralized and bottom up in a lot of context. And then if you do your job right as a leader, you're almost flipping the dynamics so that you're discovering where the magic is happening. And then you're kind of shining a light on it and elevating it up. I found that to be very useful and again, useful both in a K-12 setting, but I also think there are some broader lessons that we can draw from this. But can you talk a little more about elevating expertise? Yeah, it's essentially really understanding that we all come to the table with different strengths. And it's not that we shouldn't build our strengths, but we can't do that unless people who know how to do things that are different than what we do have an opportunity to teach us. Mm. So I might be the principal, I might be a superintendent, I might be, you know, any kind of elevated individual, and I'm there for a reason, clearly, but it still doesn't mean that I know everything or that I know the most about a certain topic. Yeah. So elevating expertise is really about who do I know? How do I take human resources that are within my building, figure out where they are and use them? Because I think we're really in the habit of, and this happens a lot with someone like me, we would like to do some learning about differentiated instruction. I'm going to call in an outside expert to teach teachers about it. They're going to do their thing and then they're going to they're going to go home. And for me, that's not the way to operate. I'm certainly always happy to collaborate and to work on something and to come back and to follow through. But there's no one shot deal for someone to come in and suddenly say, OK, now you know this. I feel like if you as the expert from the outside come in and you figure out who the person is at the school who can do that, yeah. that's a much more powerful move. And even better, if a school leader can say, hey, here's Mr. So-and-so who's been doing this great work. The two of you put your heads together and create something for everybody. That's the most powerful thing you can do because whoever that person is can then extend it to other people. And you can, once again, you can figure out who's already there. Nine times out of 10, I would argue you never need to call on an expert. And I realize I probably shouldn't say that because, you know, I don't want to go extinct or anything. But like, <laughs> it's, it's not usually necessary. There's usually somebody who can help you. Yeah. It's like the Wizard of Oz. At the end of the day, the magic was already here. Like it was already resident in the building. We just didn't know how to unlock it or how to find it. And that's because as humans, lots of times our own structures and ways of working get in our own way. I would like to get maybe some of your thoughts too for folks who may be less close to teaching in K-12. Are there any ideas out there that you think are maybe a little more broadly useful around some of the approaches or mindsets or tactics of teachers that you think might unlock new leadership potential in all of us? Yeah, I spend a little bit of time in the book going into some general leadership strategies. Like I love the work of Joe McCormick. He's written two books, Brief and Noise, about how we approach our work. And for example, in one of the books, he talks about what he calls meeting villains, like all the things that make meetings terrible. And it's universal. And there are certain things that we don't think about because we think actually they're good. Like, let me, I have an hour. I'm going to use the whole hour. I'm going to pack this agenda. And if I overpack it so much better, because then, you know, I won't run out of time. And we don't stop and think about the fact that maybe if we're done doing what we need to do, the meeting is over. Maybe this hour that we're giving it is arbitrary. Maybe we shouldn't structure at the same time every time, even though we think that's good practice. He talks about that. And he also addresses some research around the elusive 600, which is when someone's talking to us per minute, we can only process a certain amount of what we hear. Mm. And so the rest of it just sort of floats out and we don't get it. And so 
the way that we listen to people informs us so much about how we lead. And there's a scene in the book in which an assistant principal leading a meeting, a staff meeting, and teachers are upset, I think, about a grading and reporting change. And there's two different versions of the scenario. And in the first one, the leader keeps jumping in, almost in a defensive stance to say, this is what we have to do, this is what we have to do. And in the second one, I take the all-time wonderful strategies of wait time one and wait time two. And wait time one, that's the one that we all know, where when someone talks, you literally count to five not to 0.5 the way most of us do instinctively and think we've done five. Yeah. And then wait for them to talk because that allows them to formulate their thoughts and we don't jump in and take them. But wait time two is what happens after they respond. You wait five more seconds. Yeah. Because they might elaborate. Someone else might jump in. And so in the second scenario, the assistant principal is doing this. And all of a sudden, the conversation just gets a lot richer and reveals a lot more about what people know. So these are strategies that work in education. They work everywhere. We really aren't good at listening to other people. And so there's a whole chapter, two-way listening, how it works in both directions. So mm -hmm. I get into a lot of these strategies. And that's very generally applicable to leadership. And so is Chapter 7, Collaborative Communication. I talk about how we prevent fires, both the ones that we can predict, and as is the case with education, usually the ones that we cannot anticipate are coming our way on any given day. Well, and also the whole concept of keeping your focus of what you want to improve on one specific thing, because less is more. So a lot of those leadership theories have made their way into this book just because they work everywhere. Yeah. And it's interesting, as you're talking, I was thinking about the importance of lesson planning and learning objectives and the things that go into the pre-work of effective instruction. When you mentioned meetings and the other professional settings that I'm in, frequently they lack that clear sense of objectives and that clear sense of preparation by someone. And then also the orientation of the time itself, where is this instructional time where I will be imparting information to people, or is this actually a place where I'll benefit by getting new inputs and new engagement from the people around me? It is interesting. I started as a Kaplan teacher. For us, it was a seven second rule where we had to wait mm -hmm seven seconds. But, you know, as a podcast editor, I would probably edit all of that out of the finished product. But as a human engaging in real time with others, a lot of this comes back to signaling respect and signaling almost like appropriate turn taking and like even almost pushing against the traditional power dynamics of like an authority position where the teacher talks the most or, you know, the, the highest paid person in the room talks first and last, sits at the head of the table, you know, those frameworks still exist. As someone who's navigating this, how do you start to win hearts and minds so that cultures can kind of pivot from a less open, less learning-oriented, less psychological safety foundation culture? Because I imagine you see a, a wide array of work cultures as you work with a lot of different schools. Yes. And I think a lot of it is asking the right questions. So, you know, you talked about people doing things in certain ways that are more traditional. For example, our top-down structures in education really prevent the empowerment that teachers need to have. So, you know, I'm a leadership team or I'm a leader of some kind that I'm developing a professional meeting or a staff meeting on station rotations. And I'm going to present it in a slide deck in front of the whole staff and talk about it. 
And, you know, my approach is just wondering, question to put out there for everyone. If we are going to be talking about station rotation, would it be possible to explore doing the meeting as a station rotation? Ah. So modeling what we want teachers to do and even having teachers facilitate pieces of these station rotations. And you know, sometimes I'll put that out there and someone will say, mm, yeah, but no, and here's why. And there, there are times when I agree. Okay, you have a school culture thing. I don't get it. I'm not there. Do yeah. what you need to do. But a lot of the time, ironically, the very things that leaders are telling teachers to do, they don't do themselves and they mm -hmm. don't model or mm -hmm. lead by example. It's really difficult to dictate something that you don't understand. And that's why a lot of the time when new initiatives get introduced, you see a lot of people doing something very unfortunate, which is, well, they want us to do this. Or this is the directive. Everyone right. just kind of do your thing. And there's no responsibility. Whereas what you could be doing, like if a new curriculum is coming down the pipe, which happens a lot, learn it. Learn it and then bring it to staff and say, here's what we are doing. This is why it makes sense. And we're all going to do this together. So make it a collaborative thing. And if you are struggling to read it because it's not your content area or not your whatever, again, bring in teachers who can help you do that. So you mentioned 23 years of experience in a bunch of different capacities in K-12. And now it does seem like you're living your best life in a few ways where you are now an author. Your instructional specialist practice is something that's really wide ranging. It sounds like it's interesting in a lot of ways. Teaching is a really challenging job. As we mentioned, you work with teachers all the time. Do you have any advice for teachers first? And then maybe we could get some other advice for folks charting careers in education. Because in some ways, I think you've made interesting moves that might shed some new light or some different perspective for folks who are thinking about charting their own careers. You know, I always hesitate to give advice to people because first of all, they usually don't want it. And second, <laughs> I'm not sure what their struggles are. I think that if you are a teacher and you've been teaching for a while and you're looking to do something different, just remember that you have so many skill sets that translate beautifully into a variety right. of careers. And I'm not advocating leaving education. I'm just saying like, if that's where you are in your headspace, yeah. there's other stuff out there. I never wanted to leave education. For me, working in a school district gives me a sense of incredible purpose because I want that direct connection to kids in terms of the impact and, and what they're experiencing. I think that teachers are the most happy in their jobs when they are centered on the kids. I think where it starts to get really, really messy is when, for whatever reason, they can't do that. And it could be something that's from within. It could be an external force. It could be some of these Complications with leadership that I talk about throughout this book. I will tell you, I was doing a conference presentation this past November at NCTE, which is the National Council for Teachers of English. And I was actually talking about my first book. But I mentioned that this one was coming up and I mentioned the topic and the room full of teachers started to very vocally react to the topic in a way that indicated they wanted to learn more about it. And I had to say, sorry, that's not what this session's about today. I'm not talking about why you and your leaders are experiencing some friction. Next time, maybe we'll talk about that. So I think that it does resonate a lot of the time, but I also wanna say that for as many teachers that say I'm frustrated with my principal, I'm frustrated, there are just as many that say I have the best. So there is, it's not always that dissonance. It's not a given. And I really love going into spaces where you see that functionality happening. It's yeah. not super rare. It's just not as 
widespread as it should be. Yeah. And sometimes it's a place where you do need a coach or you need somebody with some experience, like a mediator, someone who can help with the bridging, help build that empathy. Frequently, it does help to bring in an outside party. The other idea that this taps into for me is the idea of design thinking and understanding your problems and understanding your actual users. And that gets back to this idea of like, you know, how do you engage with your teachers? How do we collectively as a society start to understand their problems beyond even just, you know, pay, which is a foundational problem, but beyond pay, how do we get it so that teachers feel heard in this day and age so that we don't lose those who are really getting close to the edge. And then for those who need a break, you know, what can we do to kind of reinforce the critical work that's being done by these frontline folks? I wish I had something positive to share in this regard, but I spend a lot of time talking to teachers and I've seen more than ever people who have been in the profession for a very long time throwing in the towel and saying, I'm done. I can't do it anymore. Yeah. You know, culturally, as a country in America, we don't respect teachers. We don't recognize their expertise. We don't think they have anything to contribute. We think that average person can walk into a classroom and do better. Now, the reality is that average person is going to walk into a classroom and a couple of days later walk right back out again because the job is not what it appears to be from the outside. I don't know how we change this. It, you know, it's fueled by the media. It's fueled by, right now, a lot of politically leaning groups who want to limit what teachers say and what they do and who don't have any positive presupposition about it. You know, they're actually assuming that a lot of teachers are going in there with malicious intent, that that word grooming is the most offensive thing. You know, just the idea that a teacher's going in there to try to somehow intentionally, you know, send a child on some sort of wayward path. It's really so offensive. I don't know where it starts to turn. I do know that when you get to a point where you're in a certain state and a teacher can't even say something yeah. that might be appearing in content to contextualize it, not for the purpose of doing anything, but making sure kids understand things. And when you cease to believe that educators are a safe space to bring up sensitive topics and decide that your kid could be raised on TikTok, I don't even know what to do with that. Yeah. So it's very discouraging. And I'm also not going to dip into the toxic positivity trend where teachers say, this sucks. And someone goes, oh, it's fine. You're fine. Because they're not. Right. Um, and as someone who's not in a classroom, I'm not willing to tell them that they are. I think right. that would be the height of awfulness in me. So ultimately, I think we have some work to do as a country. I don't know who's going to do it. I don't know where the tipping point is. I know that it will at some point swing in a different direction because historically it has. Yeah. I just don't know how far we're going to go. Yeah. And I guess we're going to have to continue to refocus folks on the stories of teachers and the experiences of them so that we're not ignorant of the problem. The way that we could actually start to address it is admit that there's some challenges here and also that there are people who are continuing to do the meaningful work where if the pandemic taught me anything, it's just the value of having help beyond my household in the raising of, of our children. And that, you know, I think many of us agree that there's no more noble a profession than supporting those ends. And, uh, you know, I guess when we have platforms, it's important to come out and say things that we think are obvious, you know, getting back to what you were talking about before, like some of these things about, you know, I'm against book banning. <laughs> like I am, I should 
come right out and say that nowadays because suddenly that's a political statement, I guess. So folks were questioning that. I am, in fact, against banning books. Yeah, I'm going to walk around in my I read banned books t-shirt all the time just to make it clear. And by the way, these books are not controversial a lot of the time, but okay, you do you. You go ahead and decide that everything is controversial. Right. But at the end of the day, there is a culture of learning writ large that ideally we can begin to contribute to. You've been doing it with the books that you've been writing. Anything else you want to talk about for Lead Like a Teacher? Because I also want to get a tease out for our audience because I know you have another book coming down the pike. But any other thoughts, any other topics or ideas that you want to make sure our listeners hit on that we haven't hit so far from the new book? I think the only thing is I'm continuing with this pattern that I've established, which is that a lot of education books, sometimes they remain kind of grounded in theory. And I've always had the opposite intent, which is to have a lot of practice Mm. reflected. So the book is really heavy on scenarios. It's really heavy on tools, not as much on the, there is research in there. I just try not to stay there too long because that's where it gets a little bit dry. And I also really love the fact that the foreword is by an associate superintendent who taught a high school class when he was still a principal. So I just hope that people find these examples to be relatable. Some of them are, and I say this in the book, are wildly overblown, but they're for the purpose of recognizing the problem. Yeah. Well, and I also feel like, you know, in terms of the instruction, like scenario-based instruction, you know, when you're thinking about professional development, you're thinking about a rapidly changing world of work. You know, I like to talk about future of work a lot. Things change fast. And if you're not creative enough to think about what might I do in a new and different scenario, you're less prepared when things get weird and wacky in the day-to-day. And then I know we're not done. I know you have another book. You have multiple books on the horizon, but one that is maybe a little bit far along. Can you catch us up a bit on what you have in the hopper, even though I know this one's fresh out the door? Yeah, this one's fresh out the door. I have one that is coming out in November called Writing Their Future Selves. And this one is, I really love the topic deeply. It came out of chapter three of Teach More, Hover Less, where I talk about how Building relationships is not about whether or not you know about the person just on that personal level. That's important. And it's also about whether you give kids a sense of validity in who they are as scholars, learners, thinkers. And so the idea is let's build student academic identity and that will help them succeed wherever they go after school. And how do we do that across content areas? One of the things I love about this next book is that it's got contributors from all the different content areas. I've got physics, I've got music, I've got phys ed. Using writing and strategies that are not usually associated with those content areas to move kids' identity forward. So that's, uh, once again, the audience for that one, I'm going back to teachers. And I'm, I also, just as someone who taught writing for years and years, if I had to pick a favorite, that one might be my favorite. I know it's not out yet, but. (laughs) Yeah, well, and you brought up writing, which is my segue into bringing up ChatGPT. And I haven't gotten your take uh, that yet, but as someone who has taught writing and who is a writer, it's been a pretty wild ride just since November mm-hmm. in terms of how we think about writing and how we think about assessing writing and teaching it. Any thoughts on what's going on or where your head's at related to generative AI and all the stuff that's been coming down the pike? Instead of getting alarmist about what it would do, you know, the Atlantic rant, I think it was the Atlantic, it was like the end of the English teacher or something. And I was like, no, that's not going to be it. It might be something else. You know, I really like it as a tool right now, as a teaching tool. We did a professional development 
where we were looking at, you know, here's the chat GBT written example. Here's the student one. How do we look at them? How do we, so you can really actually teach kids to analyze writing yeah. in a very cool way using it. Where it's going and what we want to do with it. I should also mention my first ever love poem for my husband came from chat GPT. So I'm super grateful for that because I've never gotten one before in my life. <laughs> We've been together for a very long time. So, you know, there's that. I do think that we're calling a lot of things too early. I think we're going to figure out, like, I know the plagiarism is a big concern. We're going to have software that figures that one out too. But the idea behind it is that I think we're having a lot of knee-jerk responses. And we're also approaching it from a lens of where we've been so far and not where education's going. Yeah. Part of the problem with education is that we keep things status quo for a very long time and we don't really embrace what's new unless we have to. Yeah. I think we're going to have to. So those are like very abbreviated, pared down thoughts about ChatGPT, but yeah, I don't know. I mean, I'm more, and, I'll, and here's the other thing, I'm much more terrified about like driverless cars and drones that can shoot people and traffic yeah. stops than I am about ChatGPT. Yeah, it's a boring Black Mirror episode so far. There are more scary things that could right. happen. And, and the flip side is, you know, as writers, as creators, as makers, generative AI is providing some breakthroughs in interesting places. So it's it's definitely something to keep our eyes on. We're about to conclude here. Miriam, always amazing to have you on. I know there's other books on the horizon. You're always doing interesting things, which, you know, feel free to share with that. But before we wrap up, you know, the new book, Lead Like a Teacher, it is out. The previous book, Teach More, Hover Less, will include links to both of them, as well as Miriam's previous appearance on the show. Thanks as always for coming. Any concluding thoughts as we wrap up with you here? Wow, concluding thoughts. You know, I think a lot of the, what we've been talking about today is just the way that people see one another and the grace that we do or do not extend. And I feel like we would all be, whether this is teacher to student, teacher to teacher to leader to teacher, we would all be a lot better off if we could just try and breathe and listen a little bit more. That's that might make things better. Maybe I'm being optimistic, but I wanted to end with a thought that was optimistic and not pessimistic about our future. Fantastic stuff with Miriam Platinsky. She's the author of a new book, Lead Like a Teacher. Check it out. Check out the work that Miriam is doing. She's a fun follow on Twitter, putting out what she's doing into the world. Miriam, thanks again for joining me on today's show. Thanks for having me, Mike. And for our listeners, hopefully you enjoyed what you heard. If you did, Please write us a review, subscribe, do all the good things. We'll be back again soon. This is Trending in Education. <laughs>